Behold what manner of the Lord, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. You know, I was thinking about a title to call this, and I really couldn't come up with anything, and I just put behold because that's the first word in there. So if you want to go to the next slide there uh, for me, uh, Christian, you know, our sound guys are the most appreciated guys in the world until something goes wrong. Nobody knows they're back there until something goes wrong. Amen. <laughs> and our band, we th- want to thank everybody for contributing to that. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The word behold, and we want to go ahead and go to the next screen. The word behold is an archaic term that basically means to observe something remarkable. In the King James Version, that's the authorized version, there are over 1,298 instances of the word behold. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, behold, I show you a mystery. That's what Paul was saying. Behold, I show you a mystery. In John chapter 1, verse 36, John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God. And if you would, just write these down and you can go back and look at these. I have quite a few of them in here. So this week, just write these down sometime and go back and review these and look at them. And Luke chapter 2, verse 2, Luke chapter 2, verse 10, the angel said to the shepherds, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. And Mark chapter 16, verse 6, the angel said to those that came to the tomb of Jesus, Behold, the place where they laid him. Now, the apostle John in this passage of scripture is drawing our attention to something truly remarkable. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Go ahead and go to the next slide. What manner of love? And I had to use the Greek, all right? I felt, I felt obligated. <laughs> and this is a word in the Greek that says potapos, and it means what kind, what kind, what manner, what kind of love God has given to us. And the word love there is translated from the Greek word agape, meaning benevolence, goodwill, esteem, typically refers to divine love. In John chapter 21, if you have your your Bible, turn with me over there to John, the the gospel of John, verse 21, or chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 21. I want to share something with you. John chapter 12, verse 21. Okay, I think that's the wrong chapter. 15, okay, 15. I don't know where I got 21. And I think that's the wrong chapter. I think that's wrong. All right, that is wrong. (laughs) It's John chapter I got John 21. Did I put 12 up there? It's John chapter 21. (laughs) I was a little dyslexic. (laughs) John chapter 21, verse 15 and 17. In this passage of Scripture, and that's probably why I couldn't find it when I was looking here, I thought, that is not right. Okay, 
When Jesus, after the resurrection of Jesus, he was, his disciples were out fishing and he comes up to them uh, while they, while they were fishing, they, they see him from the shore that he's cooking the fish and the loaves there on the, on the fire. And so when they get up there and so when they had eaten breakfast in verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. In verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. In verse 17, and he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Now, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, on the surface, this looks like, you know, Jesus was just asking him, do you love me more than these fish and these loaves? Do you love me more than uh, fishing? Do you love me more than anything else? And because in English, when we say the word love, we can say it um, and mean a several different things. You can say that I love my car, and you can say I love my wife, but you don't love your car like you love your wife. If you do, then there's something definitely wrong there, all right? We say we love this, we love that, and what it really means is we, we really, really like something. But in Greek, they had seven different words that are defined in English as love. And in this passage of Scripture, there are two words that are used, but yet in the English, they're translated the same thing. Jesus was saying to Simon Peter, Simon, do you love me? Do you have agape love for me? And Peter replied to him, Lord, I have filio, or I have warm affection. I like you as a friend. You're a good friend, like a brother. And Jesus asked him again, Simon Peter, do you love me? Do you have agape love for me? And Peter again said, Lord, you know that I have filio for you. And the third time, Jesus asked him the same question, except this time when Jesus used the word love, he didn't say agape. Jesus said, Simon, do you have filio for me? And the Bible says that Simon Peter was grieved this time, and he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I only have warm affection. And I find it I, I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, but the Bible tells us that Peter denied Jesus three times before he was crucified. And here again, Jesus asked him three times, do you really love me? And Peter, I believe, was, feel, was remembering that night that he, de, that he denied the Lord. And he was saying, Lord, you know that all I can, all, the best that I can offer you is just warm affection. And the Lord didn't criticize him. The Lord didn't condemn him. The Lord said, you know, feed my sheep, tend to my sheep. Now understand this. You will never love God enough. You'll never love God enough. God knows this better than you do, I believe. We think that we love God, that we give our lives for God, we'll do anything for God. Peter said that, Lord, uh, though all men deny you, I will never deny you, but we know that he denied him three times. We know that when the Romans came, that they all fled. Nobody stood their ground and fought back with the Romans when they took Jesus. We know that we could never love God as much as he loves us. And this verse illustrates it that we just read. 
We will never have the kind of love that God has for us. And it was this fact that the apostle John is drawing upon here. He said, behold, take note of this remarkable love that God has for us. God has a selfish, benevolent, uh, benevolent love toward us that doesn't ask for anything back, that loves us just because. God loves us like that, unselfishly, completely, totally. And John was telling us here to take note of this remarkable love that God has on us. The next slide, please. That he has bestowed upon us. And this is the word didomai, meaning lavished. Behold what type of remarkable love God has lavished upon us. What he has lavished upon us. John 3.16 says that, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. This tells us that God spared no expense in redeeming us. Romans 5 and 8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This tells us that we didn't do anything to earn or deserve this love. We didn't deserve it. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. We are, in, we are secure in his love. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. All right? We cannot manipulate the emotions of God. God loves us constantly the same. We are secure in his love. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those that love him. God's love for us goes beyond our wildest expectations. That's how much God loves us. Now, in the um, 1980s, did anybody remember the Cruz family? Anybody been in the church that long? <laughs> the Cruz family? We went, my wife and I, our very first date. We were at Bible college. We went to uh, see the um, Scott Wesley Brown, Gordon Jensen, and the Cruz family at the Astro Arena in Houston. So we went there, and the Cruz family had a song. They were the big thing back there. This was like 1982. We got married when we were six and seven. <laughs> 1982. <laughs> we were. <laughs> People look at our pictures, and they look at our wedding pictures, and say, you guys look like you were 12. Well, we're from South Louisiana, but we're not from that far South Louisiana. <laughs> All right. So we went there, and we saw the Cruz family. And the Cruz family had a song that they did, and it was called The Father's Love. It says, if you were the king of a great and mighty land, and all that you could see for miles was all at your command, would you give it all away to save one single grain of sand? That's the Father's love for you. That's how much God loves us. 
And why did he do all of this? This is the kind of love that he has. He loves you, and he loves you as if there is no one else other than you to love. And he has lavished you with grace and mercy, but why did he do it? It really doesn't make any sense that God would love us this much. And the Bible verse goes on to tell us there in John chapter 3, verse 1, go, hold, go ahead to the next verse, or the next slide, that we should be called the children of God. This was God's intent, this was God's purpose for loving us and for saving us and redeeming us, is that we could be adopted into his family. That we could be adopted into his family. The redemption of mankind went far beyond just paying mankind's debt of sin. When, when Jesus paid the price and was crucified, God could have said, okay, that's it, we're done. The debt of sin is paid and left it at that. But he didn't leave it there. He didn't stop there. But he could have, but he didn't. But why didn't he? Because he loves us. He adopted us. And the interesting thing uh, about the adoption in this passage of Scripture, especially in the first century, these apostles came from Jewish backgrounds. In Jewish culture, adoption was basically unheard of. It was very uncommon. Jews didn't adopt. They just did not adopt. It was, it was something that foreigners did, the Romans did, but it was not something that Jews did. And when John is talking here. He's talking about that we should be called the children of God. He's talking about adoption, that God brought us into his family. In fact, there is no word in Hebrew that even describes adoption. There's no word for it. So in New Testament times, and this is what the the apostle was drawing from, in New Testament times, the Romans had a significant adoption custom. The Romans' law required that the adopter must be a childless male. And number two, the adopted had to be an independent adult. They didn't adopt babies. They didn't adopt, you know, children for, the, for this particular uh, adoption process that they, uh, that they did. The uh, adoptee had to be an adult. And the, the, the adult person had to agree to be adopted, had to agree to it. And thus, in Roman culture, their belief was that the adopted became a new creature. He was regarded as being born again into a new family. And this is the same concept that the apostle Paul showed us in uh, the believer's relationship to God, that we are a new creation in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That's Aramaic. It literally means daddy, my daddy. By faith, by the spirit of adoption that we have received, we can cry out, my daddy, to God. Personal. All right? Adoption in the theological sense is only found in the writings of Paul. 
The Lord has lavished his love on us that we could be his children. And to me, this doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't make any sense. There's some things that you have to just accept by faith because there's some things in the word of God we're never gonna know until we get there. Anytime that we figure, if they say that we can figure God out, that we know all there is to know about God because God is infinite, God is omniscient, God is omnipresent. How in the world can we describe that which is undescribable? And to think that we know all there is to know about him? This is why Paul said that we see through a glass darkly. Okay? I believe we're going to get to heaven and the Lord one day is going to open some, up the scriptures and we're, he's going to say, come here, Dan, I want to show you something. You see that? I said, yep. So, man, I, I, you, you really missed it there. You really missed it. But you know what? God's going to explain something. One day he's going to explain everything to us. And there's some things that just don't make sense now, but later they will. We are new creations. We have something that the first Adam never had. Adam was not chosen. We're chosen. He was not adopted in the way that we are. Our redemption is more than a restoration of all that Adam lost. We have been given access to the very family of God. We've been brought into God's very own family. Go on to the next slide there. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. And I pondered this for a while. What is he basically saying there? And a lot of the commentaries that I were reading, they were referring to, this is why the church is persecuted. This is why Christians are persecuted because they don't know who Jesus is. Therefore, they don't know who you are, so they're going to persecute you. And if you look at things on the surface in the scripture, you can come to some of these conclusions. And this is one of the reasons that I like Charles's teaching so much is because he connects the dots. When we're going to unpack a verse, shouldn't we really unpack a verse? If this word is the word of God, and if this word has truth, and it's going to change my life, help my relationships, help me in my life in every aspect, doesn't it behoove us all to know exactly what's in this thing? And to know all of the background and all of the connections? Because it all connects. And people can say, you're spending too much time on this or you're spending too much time on that. But you know what? It's all connected. And it may not make sense tonight, but somewhere down the road it's going to make sense and you'll be able to, to uh, take that and apply it to your life. Amen. So I looked at this and I said, what does this, word, this really mean? And the thing that I came up with, and this is just according to me, I mean, you can... Do come to your own conclusions like I do, but this is my opinion. The world doesn't recognize us for who we are, and that's okay, because it did not re recognize who Jesus was either, didn't recognize him. There are some things about being Christ followers that the world just doesn't get. Now, in the first century church, and I know a lot of people like to draw on that analogy. We're trying to be just like the first century church. We're nothing like the first century church. There's nobody that's like the first century church. I'm sorry, it's not out there. Number one, we're not all wearing sandals and robes. Number two, we're not all Jewish. 
all right? Was, you know, but, but we try to, you know, we talk about the first century church, but they had a very radical message for that time. And this is one reason why they attracted so many followers, because what they were teaching was running counter to the culture outside. It was different. One of the things that they did, the early church valued corporate study of the word. That's why we come together once a week, because these are the words of life. These are the words of truth, and we need to have corporate study where we can understand these things to help us in every aspect. Now, I read something that Dr. David Lindbergh had shared with me. Lundberg, sorry. <laughs> Dr. Lundberg. <laughs> and uh, it was from George Barna. And uh, we were talking about this last night, and I was thinking, you know, this is really going to fit into what we were talking about. You know, this is really going to fit into what I'm going to talk about tonight. And there's Barna Research. I don't know if any of you are familiar with George Barna and the Barna Institute. Church growth, he does all these statistics and polls and all these things, analyzes all this data. You know, he says if you have churches with a lot of aisles and there's a lot of end seating, you attract more men because men like to sit on the end. You know, and different things. Trends. All right. And one of the trends that this, this article was saying is that what people want out of a church today isn't so much the, the music, which the music is, is important. I like the music. I like music that, I, that relates to me. I like it. I like it. I like it a lot. I like the lights. If we had a fog machine, I'd be saying, let's use the fog machine. <laughs> All right? I asked, church, I asked Charles one night, he said, you ever thought about just crowd surfing? And uh, he said, I, he, I think he did that once when he was youth pastor, and I think they dropped him or something. <laughs> And so, you know, and we think, oh, that's what all everybody's doing. They're going to wear their skinny jeans and try to be hip to attract everybody, have coffee bars at the back so everybody, you know, we're just cool. We're a cool church because that's what everybody wants. But the th interesting thing is that according to statistics, 60 per, uh, the, the people that they surveyed, they want good, solid Bible teaching. Wow. Man, I'm glad I did. That. I read that before I went out and tried to get some skinny jeans. All right, mm. great. Whew. And now it comes from relevantmagazine.com. Said the following: Christians today exhibit an unprecedented biblical illiteracy. You say, how can this be? This is probably the. This is the information era. I've got more information in the, my fingertips in my phone than my grandparents had in their entire life. Yeah, I've, you know, I, can, I can Google something. Somebody says, what do, you, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? I said, you know, that's why God made Google. <laughs> Looky there. There it is right there. <laughs> Google it. You can Google anything and find it. We have more information available today. I don't, we have a Roku, and, and uh, on our Roku, they have the religious section, and you go in there, and I started looking to see what kind of channels they had. There was channel after channel after channel after channel. There are hundreds of people out there that have a, a TV show. There's hundreds of Christian networks all over the world. There's people that watch these networks and watch these programs, listen to the radio, and yet there is a great deal that people still do not know or understand. 
How can this be? It said, according, and that was 60, and 60% of confessing Christians can't name five of the Ten Commandments. Can't name five of the Ten Commandments. And this is from an article that I read in relevantmagazine.com. 81% don't believe or aren't aware of the basic tenets of the Christian faith. How can that be? And then this was interesting. I I don't know if this guy was serious when he put through this in there or not. He said, 12% believe that Joan of Arc was the wife of Noah. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) So they had a, a, they had such a love for the word of God. The early church soaked it in. Thus, when allusions were made in the letters that Paul wrote and that the apostles wrote, they have a lot of allusions to other scriptures in the Old Testament. And it was their understanding that when they wrote this, that they believed that that the hearers or the readers would automatically know what they're talking about. And I can see where that's happened in some instances today when we have teaching about a particular thing and, and uh, people have just the surface understanding of it because they've never really dug into the word. This is something else I found interesting. The book of Revelation does not contain any Old Testament quotes but makes over 500 allusions to passages in the Old Testament. And the readers were supposed to understand this. And we read and we don't get it. And I believe that's why we have so many different interpretations about Revelation. The message, and this was part of who they were and what made them so different. Other things with their radical message. The message broke down socioeconomic barriers. The Apostle Paul said, you know, there are... And they're in, the, in, the, um, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. The, the message of Christ broke down the socioeconomic barriers. There's neither bond nor free. It broke down the ethnic barriers. There was neither Jew nor Greek. It broke down class barriers. There's neither man, male or female. What they were saying was the, the message of Christ is applicable to all people. God doesn't judge us on who we are, whether we're a Jew, whether we're a Greek, whether we're a man, whether we're a woman, whether we're a slave, or whether we're a rich person or a poor person or a middle-class person. God doesn't make any distinctions like that. So when, when the message of Christ became preached throughout all the Roman Empire, this was radical because you had a society that, that uh, was very, very different from all the things that, they, that Paul was teaching. The taught uh, slavery, that taught economic barriers, that taught class barriers. And not only that, they took a very radical political view as well when they stated Jesus is Lord. Now, if you've ever seen any coinage from Roman times, on the coin is stamped Caesar is Lord. That was stamped on their coins. So when the early church said Jesus is Lord. It was a political statement against the establishment. 
They were saying that our allegiance isn't to Rome. Our allegiance isn't to anything in this world. Our allegiance isn't to Caesar. Our allegiance is to God. And our allegiance goes beyond this world and the political systems of this world. We answer to God. And in the early church, they were self-governing bodies that were accountable to each other. And this is why they said, if you have an, uh, a disagreement with your brother, don't go to court. Don't take him to court. Settle it in the church. That's because we answer to ourselves because courts can be corrupt. Politicians can be corrupt. Leaders can be corrupt. I found it interesting, you know, people can say, that um, judges can be bought off, congressmen can be bought off, elections can be rigged. But when you tell them that sporting events could not or could possibly be rigged, they, oh my, blasphemy, blasphemy. No way, no way. And I said, my, my opinion is if you've got billions of dollars and human beings involved, anything is possible. I mean, how else could the Cowboys beat the Redskins? <laughs> it's rigged. I'm telling you, it's all rigged. Billions of dollars from all those truck and beer commercials. <laughs> they were saying we're, al we're aligned with God. We are a self-governing community. We're accountable to each other. And we will hold ourselves to that standard. And this was, was threatening to the Roman Empire. When you have somebody saying that Jesus is Lord and that they're going to take care of themselves and they're going to work out their problems amongst themselves, this was radical. And they saw it as a threat. They saw it as a potential revolution. They saw them as troublemakers, as rebels. So they persecuted them. The world doesn't get this. And I think, as Christians, a lot of times we don't get this either of who we really are and how radical this message of Christ really, really is and supposed to be. There are too many trying to imitate, emulate the world in an attempt to get the world to like them. To show them that we're all just like you. Jesus said, we're not of this world. That we're not of this world. If you were of this world, I'd have my disciples fight. But we're not of this world. The Lord said, come out from among them and be separated. This doesn't mean isolated and it doesn't mean weird. We're a peculiar people. We heard that, I heard that growing up all the time in church. We're a peculiar people. We're a peculiar people. They told, and there again, this is why you gotta, you've got to really dig into the word to find out what that word means because it does not mean we're a weird people and that's the way God wants us. God wants us weird. He wants us, doesn't want us to be isolated. He doesn't want us to be, well, if I'm going to be spiritual, I'm going to go live up on top of a hill in a monastery, and I'm going to be poor, and I'm not going to talk to anybody, and I'm going to be, I'm never going to marry and have children. And you know what the thing about that that doesn't make any sense to me is there are heathens running loose in the world, doing whatever they want, having as many kids as they want, saying whatever they want, and we think by being holy, we got to live up on a mountain somewhere and not speak to anybody and be poor. That's not what God's called us to do. God's called us to be, go into the world 
and make a difference. Jesus said that you were salt and that you were light. You ascribe to a higher set of values and your allegiance is first and foremost to God. I love my country, but my allegiance is first and foremost to God. Amen. I have been around the world. I've been to uh, Europe. I've been to Eastern Europe after communism fell. And when you go abroad and you go to a place like Bulgaria and you're there for a couple weeks and it's dark and it's gloomy and it's depressed looking and you come home and you fly into uh, the United States and you land and you see the, the, the green pasture. Everything looks so green. The sky looks so blue. Everything looks so good. This is the best thing on the block, people. I've been out there. I've seen it. This is the best thing in the blo- around the block. It's not perfect. But as much as I love this country, my allegiance first and foremost is to God. Amen. First John chapter 5, 19 says this. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Under the sway of the wicked one. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Ephesians chapter 2 and 10 says this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. What's the thing that we're, we're to emulate God in the way that we conduct our world, ourselves in this world. Yeah, Jesus paid it, paid it all. We've got access to heaven. That's a given. But now while we're, but we're still here. So what do we do while we're still here? We have to be light to the world to let them know that there's a better way of living. This gospel isn't for just for, for people that are broke down and on drugs. This gospel is for everybody. That you can find something of purpose and value in your life. Amen. So we are lavished by, lavishly loved by God. We have been adopted into his family. Go, is there another screen or is this the last one? We are lavishly loved by God. We've been adopted into his family. We are here to make a difference in the world. We're just not marking time. We're here to make a difference, to make an impact. And how do we do that? We do that by imitating Jesus, by imitating love.